This morning, here in uh, Galatians chapter 4, entitled today's message, The Graduate School of Grace. Now, there's an analogy that we're going to work through this morning in understanding this passage. I hope that it'll be helpful to you. I want you to imagine what it would be like. We had a couple of college students here on the stage this morning, uh, Bethany and, and Penny there. Uh, imagine what it would look like if just a few years from now, maybe some longer than others, but they, they come to graduation time. And, and then the question becomes, if those of you that are graduated, whether it be high school or college, you remember what everybody asks. What are you going to do now, right? I mean, that's the big question when you come to graduation. And imagine what it would be like if one of these two young ladies, if they said to you in response to that question, you know what? I think I'm just going to do it all over again. I'm going to go back this fall and re-enroll in kindergarten. <laughs> now, you would look at them like they had three heads, wouldn't you? I mean, none of us would think that that was a normal response. You would surely think that they were joking or that they had absolutely lost their mind. What, what do you mean, you might say, and go back and learn the ABCs all over again, learn 2 plus 2 equals 4 all over again, you know, go back and learn to read once more. That's ridiculous, right? I mean, you ought to be going on to graduate school in so many areas of our uh, culture now. In order to, to get a good job, you have to complete some form of, of graduate school. You ought to be going on to graduate school, and yet you're talking about going back to kindergarten? That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And yet that's the kind of analogy the Apostle Paul uses here to describe what was happening with the Galatian church. And it was being brought on by these false teachers that we have called the Judaizers. These were those who were teaching that, that the, the, the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone was not enough. They said if you, if you really want to be saved and, and if you really want to please God, you also have to become obedient to the Old Testament law. You've also got to become a good Jew. It was a Jesus plus Judaism gospel that they were pushing upon the church, and it was gaining a reception among the people. And that's why Paul writes this letter to draw them back into the gospel of grace. And so let's look at verses 8 through 11. These folks were going back to grade school, you might say. Formerly, he says, when you didn't know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. That's the, that's the present reality of every person on this planet who does not know Jesus Christ as their Savior. They are living in enslavement to idolatry in all its various forms. St. Augustine said that our hearts are idol factories, and they, they do that constantly, constantly producing idolatry, making gods of those things that are not gods. We'll talk about what some of those are here in just a minute. But he goes on to say, but now... But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, that's really where the gospel is, isn't it? It's not just that I know him, but even more importantly, it's that he knows me. But now, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Think, how can you go back to kindergarten when you ought to be going on to graduate school? So let's talk about what he's saying here 
when he says the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, if you go back to verse 3 of this chapter, you'll see him using a similar terminology. What is he talking about here? Well, let's, let's talk about some of the first principles of a fallen world, the fallen world in which we live that has been completely racked by sin. Everything in our existence has been infected by the cancer of sin, so much so that we are incapable of truly imagining a world apart from the effects of sin. And this fallen world in which we live has some foundational principles under which it operates. Let me share some of them with you this morning in terms of the ABCs of a fallen world. We're going to take you back to kindergarten this morning, and we're going to learn the ABCs of what this fallen world in which we live is all about. First principle of the fallen world is this. It's all about affluence. We live in a prosperity-obsessed culture. We've got to have the newest iPhone the week it comes out. We, we, we want to drive the, the best car and live in the best house. And we want to make more money than our neighbors do. We live in a prosperity-obsessed culture. And yet we forget that the Scriptures speak so much about the dangers of prosperity. Jesus said it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. There's a danger in prosperity that we easily push to the side. And we say, well, surely that doesn't apply to us, good Americans in God's country. But it does. There's a danger in prosperity. But we worship affluence. We worship prosperity. We worship those who make a lot of money and make themselves known through that. Affluence is a first principle of a fallen world. Get all you can for Yourself, We see ridiculous bumper stickers like he who dies with the most toys wins. No, he who dies with the most toys still dies. That's the reality. You don't get to take it with you. We, we, when we live for the things that moth and rust will destroy, we are living in a very dangerous way. But it's the first principle. It's a foundational element of the fallen world in which we live. Sin has caused us. To live for affluence. Secondly, second principle of a fallen world is bodily pleasures. We live, if you haven't noticed, in a sex-obsessed culture. You can't even go to the grocery store. Drive down the highway. Wherever you are, there is a, a constant exposure to sexually explicit images. It's everywhere that you go. And we see here in the scriptures that there's this reality in which our sin-soaked world is obsessed with bodily pleasures of various kinds, whether, whether it's the things that we eat or, or, or through those relationships that we enjoy. Whatever I can do to please myself is what I'm going to pursue. But we have to recognize that the Bible calls us not to be a people who please ourselves but to be a people who deny ourselves the irony of the scriptures is this that the greatest joy you will experience in this life is not in pleasing yourself but in denying yourself that's where joy is to be found it sounds ridiculous to a world that's obsessed with bodily pleasures but it's the reality of the word of god this is true the third principle and probably 
the most important in regards to what we're speaking about this morning is the principle of control. Once again, we live in a control-obsessed culture. So much so that we have upwards of half of our population now living on some form of anti-anxiety or antidepressant medication. The reason that we are so anxious is because we feel out of control. We forget that the gospel calls us to recognize the sovereignty of Almighty God and that I don't have to be in control because He is. You see, that's where peace is found. Not when I can gain control. Not when I can get everything uh, under wraps in my life. No, it's when I give control over to the Lord. That's where peace is found. But we rack ourselves with anxiety and worry as long as we are trying to gain control in our lives. And this search for power and control exhibits itself in a myriad of things in our lives. Not least of all, the church. You say, well, surely there wouldn't be folks that are control-hungry in the church. Yeah, by the way, the only thing that separates sinners in these walls from sinners outside these walls is this thing called repentance. The lost world looks at the church and says, well, I want to go there. It's just a bunch of sinners. And we ought to affirm that and say, yes, but we are sinners who've been saved by grace, who've walked in pathways of repentance and faith. That's the only thing that separates us. Not that we are any holier than anyone else, but that Christ is holy and he has redeemed us. So how do we see this search for control exhibited in the church? I want to give you a quote from uh, our International Mission Board President, David Platt. He was speaking about these very things. And he says, so if you go to church and sing songs and study the Word, all the things that we're doing here this morning, thinking that this is how you're going to work to earn God's favor, then you are no different from the over one billion Hindus in the world today who are bowing down to their gods. He goes on to say, what if Satan's strategy to condemn you is not tempting you to do all the wrong things, but instead leading you to do all the right things with the wrong spirit? This disease rules and reigns far too often in the church. It's the check off the box disease. Went to church today, read the Bible today, sang the songs today, endured the pastor's sermon today. We check off the boxes as a means of pleasing the God who is already pleased with us because of what His Son did in our place. Church, let's be reminded this morning, you don't need to add to what Jesus has already done. You just need to trust in it. And completely, the Judaizers in Galatia were showing the folks a Jesus plus gospel and saying, if you don't have what's on the other side of that plus sign, if, you're, if you don't become good Jews and walk in the Old Testament laws, and as he points out there in verse 10, observe special days and special holidays and all these things, if you don't do all of this stuff, God's not going to be pleased with you and you won't make it into heaven. But it was never about that. The interesting thing in this first paragraph in verses 8 through 11, it, it, it reminds me so much of the parable that Jesus shared in Luke 15. You all remember the parable of the prodigal son, right? 
Now, like so many of the parables, this one really would have been, uh, would have served with a better title. I think it really is the parable of the gracious father. He's really the main point uh, of the story. But the father has two sons. I'm going to tell the story again. I know many of you know it, but hang with me. The father has two sons. And the younger of those two sons comes to the dad one day and says, hey, pops, listen up. I, I want you to go ahead and, and give me what's coming to me in my inheritance. Go ahead and write me a check for all that I'm going to get after you die. So disrespectful in that moment. Basically treating his father as if he'd rather he, he be dead. Write me a check and so I can go and do with it what I please. And the father, in, in his love and grace toward the son, agrees. And he writes the check and the son takes it and goes off into a foreign land and he squanders it. He wastes it what the Bible calls riotous living. He wasted on parties and prostitutes and any other thing that he can come up with. And when it's all gone and he's left destitute, he takes a job feeding pigs, which was the lowliest job that a Jewish boy could imagine. And, he, and he's there in the pig pen and he's longing to fill his belly on the pig slop. It's a graphic picture, I know. He's longing to fill his belly on the pig slop when he remembers what it was like for the servants in his father's household. And he comes to himself and he thinks, I would be better off to be a servant in my father's house than here in the pig pen. And so he gets up from where he is and he makes the long journey home. And while he was still a long way off, the father sees him coming. And he rushes out of the house and he runs down the driveway and he takes the boy in his arms. And before the boy can get his, his speech out about how he's come home to be a servant rather than a son, the father is rejoicing in that his son who was lost has been found. The son who has departed has come home. It's a beautiful picture of repentance that takes place, but that's not the fullness of the story. The father says, bring the fatted calf, bring a robe to put on his back, bring a ring that he would be known as my son once again. He's returned home. And the father is excited and rejoicing in that the one who was lost and is found. But there's one in the home who's not rejoicing. You see, his older brother comes home from the field. All this time that the younger brother's been away, the older brother's been there at home, faithfully working. Serving in the father's field, taking care of stuff at home. And he comes home from the field that day to a party taking place. And he asks one of the servants, what's going on? What's, what's this party for? And the servant says, your brother's come home. And immediately the steam begins to roll out of his ears. And he goes and approaches his father. What's the deal, dad? All these years I've served you faithfully. I've done everything you've asked me to do. And I've never once been given an animal that I might have a party with my friends. And now this wretched, sinful son of yours who wasted your money on prostitutes has come back home and you throw a party for him. What's the deal? And the father invites him in the party and we're left hanging. You see, so often when we think about the, the testimonies that are exalted in the church, we think about the pig pen testimony. 
And, and I don't want to diminish these in any way, but, but, but I want us to see something here. We, we think about the testimony of the one who went to the bottom of the barrel. That their life was racked with addiction. Everyone in their life left them. Uh, they were left at the bottom of the barrel in the, in, the, in the core of the pit. And then God swooped in and rescued them and their life was radically changed. And those are, those are powerful testimonies of someone who externally was a wreck. Was the younger son in the pig pen and then God came and rescued them. Boy, what I don't think we often see is that there's an equally powerful testimony of the older brother who comes to recognize that though he's been faithful all of his life, although he's been a good boy, he's done everything the father asked him to do, even though he's been good, there still dwells within him a sin that will destroy, a pride that will cripple. There still dwells within him even a hatred toward the Father who he has professed to be serving all of these years. A hatred toward the Father that will leave him in destruction. You see, we glory in the testimony of the younger brother in the pig pen. But there are many of us in this place. If you're like me, you, you grew up in church. Externally, you've Never really done too many horribly awful things. Most people would look at you and say, man, you've been a pretty good person most of your life. Until you look internally. Until you look at the pride that destroys, the hatred that takes over the heart. Until you look at the comparisons when we look at others and disdain them. And treat them as less than. You see, here's the commonality between the two brothers. The commonality between the older brother and the younger brother was this. Neither one of them was after the father's heart until repentance happened. This is what the Christian life is all about, church. It's not just about externals. It's not just about showing up at church and reading your Bible and, and witnessing to folks. It's not just about these, it's not about these externals that we do in order to earn the favor of the Father. No, it's about the fact that the favor of the Father has been given to us by grace so that we can live in gratitude, not in guilt. So that we can walk in obedience as the fruit of our salvation and not the root of it. the end of the day, both irreligious paganism and religious legalism are both slaveries of self-salvation. Both the younger brother prior to leaving the pig pen and the older brother who served faithfully in the fields all of his days, both of these men were lost apart from repentance and faith. Both of them were in their own way trying to rescue themselves. That's what the sinful heart does. Whether I'm trying to rescue myself through affluence or bodily pleasures or the search for control, whether it is that, I, that I'm trying to rescue myself through a works-based salvation, it's, it's a prideful rescuing of self that I devote all of my days to until I recognize the reality that my only rescue is found in my Redeemer. That there is no other way of salvation. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through 
mean? It is no Jesus plus gospel that saves. Tim Keller said, earning one's salvation through scrupulous biblical morality and religion is just as much enslavement to idols as outright paganism and all its immoral practices. In the end, the religious person is just as lost and, and enslaved as the irreligious person. So I would say to you this morning, whether you've been the younger brother in the pig pen or the older brother serving faithfully in the field until you're after the heart of the Father, until you experience repentance and faith, you continue in slavery. And he longs for your rescue. So let's go back to the start of the gospel for these Galatians verses 12 through 16. Paul reminds them. I love what he does here. He's so expressive of his affection for the church at Galatia, churches that were planted there in his first missionary journey as he and Barnabas went out into the, into the world at that time and, and began to go city to city proclaiming the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ alone. And, and the Galatian churches were some of the first ones that Paul started. And yet it's interesting here that Paul brings up the fact that he never intended to go to Galatia in the first place. That wasn't on his itinerary. And yet, it was by the grace of God that he was redirected. Look at verse 13. You'll see that God used a sickness to get the Galatians the gospel. Isn't this a beautiful thing? When we say in Romans 8, 28, God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Does that include sickness? Does that include poverty? Does that include depression? All things. God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now we're going to come back to what his purpose is before we finish. That's how we see it really played out. But don't miss it. God used Paul's sickness. We don't know what the sickness was. Some have speculated that perhaps Paul caught malaria there in the coastland and going up into the region of Galatia, going up into the hillside would have been a place for him to recuperate. And so God used that, some kind of an illness like that. Some have speculated that perhaps it was a, it was a sickness of the eyes. Uh, several times we seem to see places where Paul is complaining about uh, his eyesight. There could be any number of realities. And I think the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what it was because it doesn't really matter. What matters is that God used Paul's sickness to redirect his mission. And we also notice that it was a sickness that would have left him in some way physically atrocious. My sickness was a burden to you. In those days, especially in the Greek culture of the first century, if someone became radically ill, it was seen as a judgment of the gods. If you became radically ill, there was a, the, by the way, the prosperity gospel is not a new thing. It's been around for a long time. It's just been repackaged. This idea that if you're walking with the Lord, you, you should never get sick. You should always be wealthy, all that kind of garbage that's out there these days. God used this sickness of Paul, but he also used the Galatians to minister to Paul. Perhaps the sickness was what Paul references in 2 Corinthians 12. Praying that the, his ailment would, be, ailment would be taken away, the Lord said to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you. 
My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. May we be a people who boast in our weaknesses. Who boast in our frailties. Who boast in our lack as it shows how much greater his provision is. So God used Paul's sickness to get the Galatians the gospel, but God also used the Galatians' sacrifice to strengthen Paul. Look at the words he uses here to describe what they did for him. He brings them the gospel, and then they nurse him back to health. He comes and meets their spiritual needs, and then they in turn meet his physical needs. And it's such a tender thing that's happening in these verses. He said, you, you loved me so well that I'm convinced that if you could have gouged out your own eyes and given them to me, I know that's very graphic, but he's trying to make a point here. If you could have gouged out your own eyes and given them to me, I believe you would have done it. And that's love, isn't it? Jesus said, greater love have no man than he laid down his life for his friends. And, and Paul's saying here, I believe that's the kind of love that you had for me. Remember how close we were. Remember how intimate our bond was in the gospel. But something's changed. We've grown apart from one another because some have come in with this false gospel and sought to lead you away. Look at verse 16. He says, Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? He had some hard words for the Galatians. We've seen many of them in these opening chapters. He does not soft sell anything to these guys because he loved them. Sometimes love requires us to speak a hard truth. Now there are some of us that are more wired and to speak a hard truth. We don't do it very lovingly. That's not what the Bible calls us to. And there are some of us who, who are wired to speak lovingly that will sometimes diminish the truth out of our own self-interest because we're afraid somebody will think ill of us. Here we see Paul speaking the truth in love. Proverbs 27. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. And so Paul here seeks to bring one of those faithful wounds of a friend to the Galatian believers that they might be drawn back from those who were seeking to bring many kisses and yet lead them astray. And so finally this morning, he speaks to them about going forward to the goal of our salvation. He really drives them back once more to what it's all about. If you want to know what the Christian life is all about, it is found right here in these verses. In fact, in verses 18 and 19, there's such a great summary of what the Christian life is all about. He says that it's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, notice his affection for the church. He's not just laying down the hammer here. He's laying down the hammer in love. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth. Until what? Until Christ is formed in you. And that's what it's all about, church. Until Christ 
is formed in you. That's what the Christian life is about. It's not about checking off the boxes. It's not about seeking to earn the favor of God. It's about the reality that the favor of God has already been extended to you through what Jesus did at the cross. And so now we're reminded that ultimately the gospel is all about Him. We are so tempted to get self-centered in the gospel and to think that the gospel is all about us. We think it's all about Jesus came to die for us. God loved us so much that he did such and such and so and so. And all that's true. But don't miss this reality. It was all about his glory. If you take the gospel to a place where it's all about you and you set aside the reality that it was primarily about the glory of God, you risk losing the very heart of the gospel. Yes, it was for your good. But first and foremost, it was for his great glory that Christ would be formed in you. But you see, he speaks there in verse 17 of the, this group called they. There's, these are the false teachers, these Judaizers. And, and what he's saying there is that false teachers who bring a false gospel, they tend to see people as a trophy to be won. We see this all over the landscape of the church today. Those who view people as a trophy to be won. And so the gospel is watered down or pushed to the side altogether. Hard truths are written out of the scriptures. We won't address the issues and topics of the day through a biblical lens lest we might offend someone. The false teacher sees the people as a trophy to be won. They make much of you, Paul says, so that they might keep you out. Keep you out of what? Keep you out of the true gospel. They made much of you. They held you up as a trophy of their successful teaching. They're saying, look what we did at Galatia. They bought it hook, line, and sinker. Look how many converts we have made. But it was not to the glory of God. It was to the glory of the false teachers. And by the way, it's the same today. Look at a man's teaching. Is he pointing people to Jesus or to himself? This is the dividing line. And so I'd ask his church, in view of verse 19, I want to leave you with a question today. In view of verse 19, what is our greatest desire for our church? Now, we could be quick, as we often are, to individualize this verse. But if this were written in our southern drawl, it would say, until Christ is formed in y'all, not you. The you here is a plural word. And yes, yes, don't misunderstand, yes, we want to see Christ formed in us as individuals. But Paul's emphasis here is Christ being formed in the body of Christ. Christ being formed. That we would, as Ephesians 4 says, grow up into him who is the head. Seeing Christ formed in us. Seeing the character of Christ formed in us. Seeing the mind of Christ ruling in our midst. Seeing the love of Christ being put on full display as we self-sacrificingly love one another. Seeing the word of Christ dwelling in us richly, 
even as it guides us in our singing and our preaching and our daily living, encouraging one another, and all the more as we look forward to the day of His return. This is what it means for the Christ to be formed in us. And so I ask you once again, church, what is our greatest desire as a church? What's A number one on the list? I, th I think for far too many, we would be content with lesser glories. We would be content if all the seats were filled and we had to pull more chairs out from behind the curtain. We would be fulfilled and content if the offering plate was just overflowing with money and we had more than we knew what to do with. We, we would be content if everybody was at peace with one another and we had no issues in the church. We would be content with lesser glories than Christ being formed in us. But church, let us not be content with anything less. And so when you rise up early in the morning and you open this holy word, may it not be so that you can check off the box of how many chapters you read tomorrow morning. May it be so that Christ would be formed in you. And when you bow your knees before the Father and you offer up prayers and petitions to Him, may it not be just so that you can check off your prayer list. May it be so that Christ can be formed in you. And when you are given opportunity in your workplace and at your school and at the gas pump and, and in the restaurants, when you are given an opportunity to speak a word for Christ, may it not be so that you can just check off the evangelism box. May it be so that Christ could be formed more in you and in the one you have opportunity to share the light of the gospel with. Do you see how different this is than just checking off the box Christianity? And our goal, everything we want in life is to be known for love in Christ. To be known as his bride. To be known as sons and daughters of the king. This is his purpose for you. And so I'll leave you with Romans 8, 28 and 29. And we know. We know, don't we, that those who love, for those who love God, all things work together for good. We love this verse, don't we? But sometimes we stop at that comma, and we don't need to. Here's where it goes from there. For those who are called according to his purpose. And the question you need to be asking is this. What's his purpose? That's the key to Romans 8, 28. We think it's all things working together for good. We're content with that. No, the purpose. What's the purpose? Keep reading. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And I know how quickly we get caught up in those words foreknowledge and predestined. But here's where I want you to get caught up this morning. We could spend a long time talking about those words and we don't need to write them out in any way. We need to recognize that those are biblical words that are meant to convey the truth of God's love for us and his grace in the gospel. Well, here's, what, here's his purpose. To be conformed to the image of his son. What is the purpose for which God works everything for the good? For those who love him. To be conformed to the image of his son. 
You say, can my cancer do that? He most certainly can. I have seen the character of Christ formed in sons and daughters of the king through cancer. You say, can my debt do that? Most certainly. We think that poverty is something to be escaped from. When perhaps poverty is a greater gift from God than prosperity would ever be. Because it forces us to lean in in dependence upon the Father in ways we wouldn't were we living in prosperity. Some of you in this room are walking that road right now. Don't grow weary. Don't lose heart. Trust your God. That the character of Christ is being formed in you, even in the midst of your suffering, especially in the midst of your suffering. And this is his sole purpose in your life. Your greatest good is that the character of Christ, the mind of Christ, the love of Christ, that these be formed in you. That the truth of God's word sets up shop in your life, not just on Sunday mornings or on Wednesday nights, but all throughout the week. That what you read early in the morning sticks with you all throughout the day and transforms you by the renewing of your mind that you may test and approve that which is the good and pleasing, perfect will of God. What's His will? To be conformed to the image of His Son. I don't know what you think the Christian life is all about, but it's right there. It's all about Christ. Him crucified for you. And you conformed to his life.